Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. So for today's episode, we're doing something a little bit differently. Rather than having a guest that we get to interview for the episode, we are going to do a little bit of a, a kind of a roundup, a roundtable response to SMT. Um, if you're not a theory nerd, you probably aren't aware that um, the Society for Music Theory just had its annual conference, and because of COVID-19, um, that was entirely virtual. So it did not meet at a city or at a university, but it was completely online. And there were tons of papers, presentations, um, uh, guest speakers, symposiums, chats, slack rooms, all sorts of things. Our vocabulary is expanding, I feel like, by the day with all these terms. Um, True. But we thought we would just kind of talk about some of the pedagogy topics that were presented that we were able to attend and and engage with and kind of give a little report on what we thought was great, what we thought worked well. Um, I am actually an SMT virgin. Well, actually no longer um, because I, of course, <laughs> am a composer and composers go to conferences. The way comp composition conferences work is the only way you go to a conference is if you get selected to go is if your piece gets picked. So it's like just the winners. Um, <laughs> but with theory, you know, everyone goes, it's like a big party. And so this was my first SMT experience, though it wasn't the, the real deal. You know, I, I didn't get to hang out with the, uh, the, the sage theorists and, um, and uh, get to get to hang out like that. Uh, or but, us. Or, or you, that's right, or either of <laughs> right. you. That's, that's what right. would really mean. Right, that's what would really be happening. I would call myself a sage at this point. <laughs> Maybe Ben. ben yeah, no, better. no, I'm not yeah. a stage theorist by <laughs> any means. But oh. so I thought, like Jen and Ben, you, you're you're veterans of SMT, virtual now, and of course face to face. Uh, what are your thoughts on how how it went? I I had kind of mixed feelings about the format, um, and I can talk about that in a minute. Um, but I wanted to say first of all that this is the most pedagogy topics and sessions I remember ever seeing at the national conference. I don't know, Ben, if you would agree, and I don't have like a scientific. <laughs> I haven't studied every program from every year to back that up, but just there were so many uh, pedagogy topics, and I found that really. Um, I thought that was really wonderful, and I was happy to see that. I felt. On the one hand, it was kind of great to be able to like do laundry while attending SMT or <laughs> go make lunch in my own kitchen. Um, I missed, of course, the normal, you know, going out for meals together and just sitting around and talking about how things are going in our classrooms and with our research. I definitely missed that time that we normally would get. And even though um, they tried to create that, I still felt like it's not the same, obviously, as sharing a meal and everybody kind of, you know, telling their stories and laughing and all of those things. Um, but I also enjoyed I went to way more sessions simply because none of them conflict mm -hmm. and I could kind of easily pick and choose or pause if I needed to and all of those kinds of things. So um, I could pause and take notes if I wanted to write something down. 
So there were bonuses. And then, of course, the downside is always missing out on being around people. That's 2020 in a nutshell. Right. <laughs> ben, what exactly. did you think? Yeah, I totally agree with the number of pedagogy sessions and seemingly a lean over more towards um, pedagogy initiatives in terms of diversity, inclusion, and the like. That was a really nice to see, I thought. Um, but also, just from a broader perspective, just pedagogy in general. Uh, a lot of fantastic speakers, a lot of fantastic topics. And it seemed to have a really fruitful discussion, and a lot of the a lot of the sessions and a lot of the Q and A's were really well done. Um, I know a lot of people said they liked the way that uh, the respectfulness um, mm -hmm. and the integrity of the Q and A was really good because people were typing in obviously their their questions, so mm -hmm. you didn't have this. What sometimes occurs is a one person dominates, I guess, the Q&A often, mm -hmm. or you have something that's not really the topic of the session. It's a little bit tangential, but then it dominates the Q&A for some reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not um, even a question. It's just a, <laughs> right. just a right. statement. <laughs> so I think the, the decorum in the Q&A was, was good, and that was a plus. Um, and yeah, as, as Jen said... And as we've said before on the on the podcast, you know, the hallway conversations, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of the following year's SMT presentations organically grow out of like the hallway conversations from the previous totally. year's SMT yeah. or interest yes. groups where you say, oh, you know, actually I was working on this and I was working on this. If we were to unite our projects, we could really do something for next year's SMT or a, a joint session or a panel comes together. And uh, I hope, I sincerely hope that other people have come together, whether it's through interest groups or just um, groups of mutual friends um, to still continue those projects. Cause that's something that really uh, energizes me and galvanizes the next year's worth of projects um, mm -hmm. and exploration. So yeah, it was cool. I really enjoyed being able to rewind and, replay and I will I will confess that I watched some of the presentations on a 1.5x because I only had a certain amount of time mm -hmm. or the, the kids temporarily fell asleep and I had a 20 minute window to watch something that was actually 30 minutes so I tried to go either time and a half or 2x and get through it which I thought was actually really nice I could still get through some some mm -hmm. more material faster so that's my the confession of SMT this year well, no, that's I how, think that's great. Yeah, that's how I think we all listen to our podcasts is at least 1.5. <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> but, um, and I, 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 I will confess that I did not listen to you, Ben, in your presentation at 1.5, because um, you actually uh, co-presented, you had a session. And so maybe just give us a little bit, a little plug for what it was about and what was your experience kind of on the, the other side of of this uh this event where you actually were presenting and having to prepare the materials and things like that i thought the experience was really nice being a presenter a panelist this year uh we talked about uh fidelio my partner uh is graham hunt in that project we're talking about uh form and also voice leading and motifs together and how both of those things contribute to the dramatic action of of fidelio um, so if you're interested, feel free to watch uh, our presentation, it's still available, and our Q&A went really well, I thought. We had questions from uh, Michael Buckler and William Kaplan, among others, so it was really, really nice to, to get the Q&A going mm -hmm. and have people still able to watch our video post-conference, technically. I can still make a statement about our video. It's still up. <laughs> 
that's one of the things about being online and it seemed like a trend with a couple of the uh, presentations was about um, expanding kind of the reach of what we're doing all right so going beyond just a journal or um, a conference where it's one and done and you know using the internet using those technologies to kind of leverage our scholarship and to, to share with the wider world what what we're really doing do we want to jump into some of the pedagogy sessions yeah let's let's yeah. jump in what 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 did we think what I know you have a bunch of notes, Jen. So I do. I'm a note taker. <laughs> Jen's the I... best note taker out of all of us. <laughs> By far. <laughs> well, the first one was the session about Gary Karpinski's um, yeah. RL Skills Acquisition text, mm -hmm. which is 20 years old. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Mm -hmm. I know. It was great to see him there, and um, it's always great to hear him talk. And, of course, that book has been important for me in my teaching, too, so mm -hmm. I thought that was a really great session. Yeah, I liked being able to come back to some of those quotes. You know, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> not to make it too religious, but there's something about that text. There's this kind of, uh, 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 well, it's not like a Bible, but it's like there's a, it's a sacred text where every time you go kind back of, yeah. to it, um, you, you get something else out of it. It's like the Michael Rogers pedagogy book. I feel the same yeah. way about that. Every time I reread that, I'm like, oh, that little nugget. I never noticed that. And I feel like with the Karpinski uh, text, there's that same type of relevance and uh, kind of inspiration that you can get each time you kind of return to it. For sure, for sure. I thought it was interesting. So the first um, presenter talked a lot about, he had done um, kind of gathering information about how various people teach RL skills and what they teach. And one of the things he pointed out is that even though RL skills acquisition says that discrete tasks like listening for intervals or chord quality that kind of thing are actually not a great way to acquire that information or to acquire mm -hmm. that skill that most of us still do them <laughs> when we teach yeah. I, I know i mean in RL skills one we do some interval drills yeah. um do you guys do that kind of drill in your RL skills classes yeah and basic yeah. basic intervals you know harmonic and and uh, melodic yeah even though we try not to focus on that and right. focus on the function of those right. intervals rather than just hearing them as isolated events, they're still part. And, you know, rhythmic dictation, that's another thing that he kind of yeah. mentions that, you know, we should not overemphasize. But that's something that I use, especially dealing with singers, <laughs> where rhythm too. is a deficiency. Now, it's always a melody. They're always hearing more than sure. just a rhythmic element. Yes. Although I've actually wondered about that sometimes because, you know, we are training songwriters at DBU. And so they need, they need to know how to write out percussion lines or to, you know, I mean, rhythm is actually one of the things that they struggle with the most when they get into trying to transcribe their own songs. Rhythm mm. is often the most complicated problem mm. that they have. So I don't know. It's an interesting and challenging question. In part, I think that we do discrete interval drills in our RL skills classes, mostly because it's convenient and it's in the textbook, mm -hmm. right? And like, I'm not sure that I have a much better reason for it than that. It's easy to assess. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had brought up, uh, I had brought up in a TF meeting, the, the possibility of reducing the amount of, of intervals training that we do. And I got, kind of a 
significant pushback from the hmm. from the TS themselves. So hmm. I kind of left it alone temporarily, but it's always time to return to things, you know, and keep mm-hmm. keep refining and keep thinking about it. And even if you have, I also thought my thought in regard to that was about styles that place rhythm as a higher um, component of the style, I guess. You know what I mean? Right. Versus like harmony, Pop let's say. Yeah. Right. I mean, is would it be would it be fair? Would it be fairer to those styles? to represent it accurately and the way you go about writing it down or the way you go about listening to it, you should probably reflect that stylistic kind of priority or I don't know. I'm not wording that very well, but uh, you know, to put rhythm at the top is not always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I mean, he, he of course argues that we should teach rhythm and teach how to notate rhythm, just not kind of as an isolated thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. but it goes back to the way that we're taught i'm sure we all were taught here how to hear intervals and basic you know rhythmic dictation and i'm sure your tfs are similar in that situation ben we're like yeah i learned you know here comes the bride that's a perfect fourth (laughs) right do to fa right no um but it's it's really hard to uh to unlearn that for sure yeah well speaking of tfs in this session when we went into our breakout rooms I was the only non-student in my room. Everyone else Hmm. was a student. And I thought that was really fantastic. It's possible that they were able to be there because it was virtual this year. Um, Mm -hmm. That might have made a difference in access for a lot of people. They didn't have to pay for a hotel or a plane ticket or those kinds of things. Um, But it also made me think about the fact that so much of our oral skills instruction is relegated to teaching fellows, teaching assistants, people who are first year teachers sometimes or who have never been in a classroom before. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about like, why? Why is that our setup? Why are first year teachers not teaching theory three? And instead, (laughs) they're teaching oral skills one. And what does that say about our priorities for what is most important? You know, Mm, I don't know. What do you guys think? It makes me think of Jenny Snodgrass when she was, was given the, the choice. Thing, ben. Was oral skills thing. one. She mm-hmm. asked for oral skills one of all the things in the world, and uh, yeah, it's really telling. I mean, I try to when when I make the TF schedule, I guess for for UNT, I try to mix the experienced TFs with the younger. That way, there's mm-hmm. a a community of teacher learners, I guess, kind mm-hmm. of sense going mm-hmm. on. But but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, do we think that it's that people don't want to teach it? I don't know. I like to teach oral skills personally. Yeah, um, I, too. I like teaching both written theory and oral skills. Um, I'm a lot like Jenny. I would pick, I would pick oral skills one. I've taught, I did the math recently and it was like 32 or 33 sections of oral skills one across my career. So a lot of oral skills ones and I love it. I still love uh-huh. it um, every single time. And I don't know. In some ways, I thought if there are people out there who don't love it or who don't want to teach it, and that's why that's our system, that's kind of sad. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not a good reason to me. Right. It could be what you were saying earlier, Jen, about the history of pedagogy itself. And when you view oral skills as a supplement or a lab section or a reinforcement of written theory, automatically mm-hmm. you're you're not placing it on kind of the same pedagogical level that's true 
that's certainly true. that's got to play a part in it um whether it's subconscious mm-hmm. or conscious you know you can debate that but that's true right so for our podcast listeners who were not present for our pre-recorded discussion <laughs> about this i mentioned that in one of the papers that i heard in one of the history of pedagogy um sessions they talked about how oral skills had began as a sort of reinforcement for written theory and was never really conceived of even as a way of teaching oral perception and the you know that leaves the question or begs the question like do we teach oral perception now i think we do to some Mm -hmm. extent but i think we also still use it as a kind of support mechanism for teaching written theory as well and you're right if you view it as you know kind of a lab component to music theory it makes sense that that's where you're going to put your your new teachers right right overseeing the lab Right. There's no society for oral skills. It's society for theory, music theory. That's true. And, <laughs> and everything that it's like, you know, theory textbooks, they're called harmony, right? Harmony gets this, this uh, place at the top. Yeah, I wonder about true. skill, because that's what, not to be too cynical, but maybe there are people that don't have the skills or are, are um, um, nervous about, you know, having not being able to hear things or play things yep. and things like that, because I remember that being be. so nervous my first time teaching introduction to oral skills and having to sing in front of them and practicing my little solfege patterns right. over and over. And of course, I walk in and they know nothing. And so, right. but like, you know, I was so nervous that they were going to call <laughs> me out on every little error that I made. Um, so I think there, that's a possible, that is a possibility. Um, that there is, you know, people are not as comfortable, they can hide behind, um, you know, the theory teaching. Um, but even, even still, you know, thinking of the lab component, uh, at my university, if they don't pass theory three, or they, they fail theory three, they cannot move on to oral skills four until right. they've passed theory three and are in theory four. Oral, oral skills is always concurrent or perhaps trailing. With right. theory right. it's never Same in here. front it's never you can yep. you can never be in theory two and oral skills three because oral skills three is supplementing or is is we're learning how to hear the topics that you're learning in the real theory class theory three so i don't know really how to <laughs> right. get around in that air quotes you put that in air quotes. right air quotes right yeah please don't <laughs> no angry emails yeah, yeah i mean sure. if if we have faculty colleagues out there who who feel that they lack those skills I would say, you know, to people listening who are training graduate students, it's critically important that they have those skills because that is a major element of what we do. And some of us end up at big research universities. You know, UNT is a big research university and some people end up on the faculty at UNT like Ben, but some people end up on the faculty at a, you know, liberal arts, small private university like mine. And, uh, you know, me and I have another full-time colleague and we're the whole show. So, you know, us and we have a a few adjunct friends and we, you know, we don't have TFs or TAs. So we both are teaching oral skills every semester. I wouldn't want it any other way. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're training people to do that work, they're going to be doing, they're likely going to be doing that work. And so, you know, pushing them hard to build those skills in grad school, I think is a really Mm -hmm. important thing. And I, at UNT, I was pushed really hard in my pedagogy class on the oral skills side of things. And I'm, I've always been grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And so. viewing oral skills, not as a stepping stone to something else. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Okay. You'll, you teach oral skills 
as an underling or as a junior faculty. But then, you know, when you get tenure or uh, when you move up, then you get, you know, the real, the real classes. I think that stigma is totally out of bounds. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, to me, RL skills is the most practical tool that we give our students. Um, it's the one I use the most as a performer, for sure, when I'm mm -hmm. singing or playing or whatever. It's definitely the the strongest, the skill I use the most out there mm -hmm. sort of in the real musical world. And again, I'm putting that in quotations. Right. So we don't get any <laughs> other angry emails. By the way, we've never gotten one email, no. good or bad. So I don't know. I don't know what we're worried about. <laughs> yeah. But I was, uh, before we started recording, I mentioned that, or actually Ben, you had mentioned that I'd done a survey with my theory pedagogy class about um, how important is music theory? And then how important is oral skills? It was two different polls. And more students thought that oral skills was actually more important than music theory. And in my class, it's, um, it's largely music ed and music therapy majors. And it makes perfect sense that oral skills would be the most important, most useful topic, um, even, more than, even more than theory in their, their own work and their life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Once I you can... get beyond those basic fluency tasks in music theory, um, obviously I think it's all important. Otherwise I wouldn't want to teach it, but, but those basic fluency tasks are the ones that educators and therapy people, you know, that's what they're using every day. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're sitting down and thinking about the deeper meaning in the form of box <laughs> crucifixus, you know, maybe, <laughs> but maybe not. And so right. I think, and you mm -hmm. know, I mean, obviously our, our whole job isn't just to give them like practical job skills. We're not mm -hmm. a technical school, right. but you know, I do think it's valuable to think about what we focus on and what they'll use mm -hmm. later on. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually kind of conceived, as I told you all before we started recording, I've always been an aural first person where I prefer to hear things first. Um, and I consider myself an audio learner through and through. I've kind of thought of my theory teaching as a supplement to the aural. I I've actually kind of mm. conceived it the mm. complete opposite way before because I love that. In the freshman year at UNT, oral skills is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and theory mm -hmm. is in the middle of that on a Tuesday, Thursday. So it actually made a lot of sense to me to kind of flip that yeah. that paradigm and think about the oral part first, that we do a lot of just neutral syllable singing and things like that in the theory class before talking about the written version of anything. So maybe mm -hmm. maybe that's something that'll take off um, in, year, in the next couple of years and people mm -hmm. can kind of see it both ways, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I have thought many times this semester about how we can't sing in my oral skills classroom because of safety. And so the original plan was to, um, you know, not have class for as long every day or, you know, have certain days that are dedicated to singing and we meet outside or we meet online. And we have done that, but I'm still meeting class as long every single day and we're doing tons of dictation and I still always feel like I don't have enough time. I have, I have many times kind of wished for the days of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, oral skills at UNT because you yeah. just could do so much more skill building with three hours a week over two. Yeah. So there was the poster session, the pedagogy poster and session. Poster right. yes, session, which was yes. great. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I kind of wish that was a full-length session, to be honest with you, because mm -hmm. I really enjoyed what everyone had to say. 
I did too. I there was the the paper on. Well, I loved uh, these guys are Texas guys, so we know them from te- uh, TSMT. But the guys who did the paper on cadences, like <laughs> taking cadences away from from how we describe form and how we talk about form as being the mm-hmm. only measure of whether or not a phrase has ended. And I loved how at the beginning they were like, we feel uncomfortable about how we teach form. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> meme with the shocked face. I know, I know. Dum, dum, dum. And I, I feel the same way. I felt that way many times where I'm saying like, a cadence is how you end a phrase. And a phrase only ends if it ends with a cadence. And then I feel like I'm being dishonest with them because i fully know that there are that would make beethoven phrases or brahms phrases that are like four and five pages of music and that's ridiculous and it also rules out a lot of things that feel like cadences in popular music and jazz but wouldn't have the same harmonic function as what we're teaching them in that moment which is Mm -hmm. one or five Right. And of course, there's a lot of ending on one and five in popular music and jazz and all kinds of styles. But there's also moments like there are tons of internal plagal cadences um, in popular music. And uh, there's even endings on four in the middle of phrases. Yeah. I have a colleague who calls that a plagal half cadence. Um, well, doesn't that go back to the, the hearing versus the written, the oral mm-hmm. versus the theory? I mean, yeah, on paper, five to one, that's a cadence. But you know, listen to a pop song that doesn't even have one. Like there's pop songs that ha- doesn't have a one chord. Yeah, the whole <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, the whole way through. Yep. And jazz, saying jazz is that... so like two five heavy. Right. Yep. That you might get the whole way through a jazz chart and never see a one. Or right. Does that mean there's never a cadence in that Taylor yeah. Swift song? Well, that's absurd. There's never right. a moment of rest <laughs> or arrival. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that paper, and it did make me think. You know, I I was teaching, ironically, teaching cadences these couple weeks in theory one <laughs> while I heard that paper. And I thought, well, that's pretty much what I said in class. And uh-huh. I did feel kind of bad about it when I said it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm right I, there I, with them. I'm right there with you. I had just uh, wrote to, to John and Brian Yeah. the day before we were recording this, telling them how much I enjoyed what they had to say and the way they outlined that, um, the way, you know, boundary detection, for example, um, was great and the ending i think brian was the one who actually read this text obviously it's a it's a joint paper talking about how the focus is not on the theoretical apparatus for yes. kids i love that mm-hmm. i just thought yes please give me more you know give <laughs> yes. me another 10 minutes can you can you not stop there please you know i just thought yes every to, to all of that i thought mm-hmm. i thought yes and I, I wrote to them both about it because i really did enjoy it and the musical examples is great from waitress by yes, Sarah Borelli. Yeah, so i didn't team. know that she wrote the music to that yeah. but it was, she it did, was great yeah. to hear that example too that was a fantastic mm-hmm. example for sure I think Lee Van Handel was in that too, right? Was in the poster. Um, she might have chaired it, actually. Mm, no, no, not that, that one. one. That was in. The, that was a different session. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny with the two weekends. Like, yeah, it's, it runs. It together. kind of runs oh, all together. Lee was in the Gary She's... Karpinski session, and she had the great discussion of like cognitive load. Um, like growth is, mindset was in there too. Growth mindset, that. yes, and um, stereotype threat. So she talked about how music majors often come in, and if they are at all bad at oral skills to begin with, they feel like, oh, I clearly can't do this, right? Mm-hmm. 
um, which that and growth mindset go hand in hand. But I, totally. I loved yeah. that. I had never thought about the fact that um, by by not giving the students any information when you do melodic dictation, that that could like way send the cognitive load meter off the chart. Um, But her argument was that that melodic dictation or getting the full answer is not the goal. Right. Right. Which really made me think about that task. And of course, Mm -hmm. again, because of convenience, a lot of times I do give them the key and the number of measures and all of that because it's in the book. And I say, Mm -hmm. turn to page 53 and we're going to do number four. Right. right? So, but I was, I was thinking about that because, you know, I was listening to, we were listening to a song and, and, and with, with my wife, I don't remember what, what it was. And my wife's a musician, a really great musician, um, choir, choir director. And I, I kind of pick out some solfege and she knows her solfege really well. And, but she's like, how did you hear, like, how did you hear that that was the tonic? Like that, that was a, that was dough and that was fa and whatever. But I'm like, I, I don't like, it just sounds like home that note. Right. And that's, yeah. and like, I, I just realized in that moment, like I have no way of describing that, but that's actually yeah. what, what students our students will experience if they ever do any type of kind of ear training or anything where they're using their ear, they're not going to have a, uh, you know, a prescribed melody that gives them, oh, the meter mm-hmm. and the and the key. No, they're gonna have to just listen and find where that dough is. And mm-hmm. and I don't know how I don't really know how to teach that. Because it seems some students can just get it and or at least in a very systematic way, like, oh you just feel it. You know, you kind of hum around and where does that solid notes feel like, okay, that's gonna be your dough. But I, I, I'm with you there, Jen, is that our, our exercises that I do, and I do all sorts of exercises where it's like, you know, the key's given or you mm-hmm. count off and things. Um, I always count them in. Yeah. Like every time I did it yeah, the count in this off. last couple of weeks, every time I did it, I thought, yeah. what am I doing? I know. <laughs> yeah. I should just start. <laughs> when I was in that breakout room with uh, the Gary Karpinski one, um, I was mm-hmm. with two, two former students of, of, of Gary. And so they're oh, like, wow. they're like, they're like uh, Karpinskiites, I guess. I don't yeah. know, but they're like, yeah, you know, we don't, we don't give the notes. We don't give like anything. It's just like you're going wow. in, which I, I agree is like this cognitive load, like, <laughs> Uh, yeah wait but that's that's what students have to be able to do if right. they're if they're wanting to apply this to actual lived reality yeah well and that goes back to you know i think our our theory centered uh ideas make us think that getting an accurately notated transcription is the goal but actually learning how to figure out where dough is how to feel the meter how to figure out what scale degree you've started on how to find, you know, which pulse feels, you know, because sometimes even, especially in popular music, sometimes I'll have students say, I'll say clap the beat and some of them clap what I think is the beat and some of them clap the divided beat and some of them are twice as long, right? Because Uh they're all feeling kind of different patterns in there. So all of that is actual perception Mm -hmm. over the written notated skill, right? right? And do you even know how, how that pop tune is notated in the first place? (laughs) <laughs> right. right likely not <laughs> right yeah. exactly. rothstein would only clap every four bars right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're never wrong then i guess <laughs> never wrong yeah yeah i mean the question then of course is how do we assess the real goal of the activity if some of them perhaps perceived a lot but did not notate a complete melody 
how do we assess that? How do we weight that? That's the challenge. Mm. And I think that's why a lot of us, you know, opt for testing or assessing things like, did they notate it correctly? Because Mm -hmm. it's easier and we don't have clear answers for how to do it another way. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it's so individualized that you have 60 Mm -hmm. students and in order to test everyone individually for 10 minutes takes 600 minutes or whatever it is, you (laughs) know, it's just an insane amount of time that a lot of us don't have. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, that's Well, even, you know, my, I'm teaching oral skills three right now. There are nine of them. I'm sorry to everyone who just heard that and got really mad at me. Nine? I'm really sorry, (laughs) but there are nine of them. You have nine sections of oral skills? I have nine students in oral skills three. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, But, uh, you know, even this week, I have a, there are a large number of them in quarantine. And so meeting it face to face became impossible. So Mm -hmm. we're fully online this week with that group. And I did one on one coachings with them. And even with just nine students, one on one coachings took three times the amount of normal time that class time would take. I think it was time really well spent. Several Mm -hmm. of them told me they got a ton out of it and that they um, that they had never really there were certain aspects of their sight reading they'd never really thought about before that mm-hmm. I could kind of coach them on or encourage them how to do that better next time. But still, the the amount of time is crazy. And if I had any more than nine students, I might not have been able to make it happen. So, sure. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The individual aspect is really challenging. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, that's that makes it tough. I've been I've been grading recorded sight singing melodies all day today. Um, yeah, for days. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I even I with you. just nine, I'm in the same boat, <laughs> <laughs> like listening to every rhythm and every, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, what else did we, what else did we, uh, uh, attend and, uh, there the was the open education resources mm. session, um, which really made me think we, our textbook that we use is quite expensive. Now, they use it for four semesters. So mm-hmm. across four semesters, that maybe evens out the cost. Yeah. But um, yeah, the the open resources idea and the, the level of accessibility that it affords mm-hmm. people, I thought was a really fantastic one. I enjoyed that session a lot. Yeah, I did too. And that's something my university is is certainly pushing and encouraging. We have you know, a minority majority a campus so and we have a lot of first year uh, first generation students mm-hmm. um and so we have students who are transfer transfers or uh, come from community colleges um commuting so uh, students from a variety of kind of economic and social backgrounds and so you know oers open re- no o- o- e- open, open educational resources o- okay there yeah. we go oers there mm-hmm. we go yep. um yep. it's something i've been thinking about and I haven't mentioned that this actually to either YouTube, but we have a large music therapy program and the therapy faculty are totally reimagining the therapy curriculum at TWU. And one mm-hmm. of the things is they are going to be getting rid of the requirement for theory four and oral skills four. And then we're going to have a different kind of applied mu- music theory class, basically for theory four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, that's great. And we put the application for the or submission for the, the curriculum committee to get that new course, which hopefully will be happening in the fall. But now I'm like, well, what about, you know, these students who are going to be taking this class 
is the textbook that I'm using appropriate? Should I be, you know, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to approach it, in fact, mm, and yeah. um, because it's going to be more skill-based and more kind of popular music. And I'm actually really excited to get into these topics. But the textbook is one of those things I'm like, boy, I'm not sure if the textbook that we currently have would be necessary for that class. And if that's mm -hmm. the case, well, then they're only using it for three semesters. And, mm -hmm. and I'm using less of that textbook. And, and I've also been thinking about taking other things out. And so I'm like, well, it's, it's a big investment. Um, on their mm -hmm. end, and, but then of course it's a big investment uh, uh, whenever we have to switch textbooks, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and that's well, always it's scary. investment of time and labor on our parts. Oh, too. absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Teaching from a new text currently, I am right yeah. now in theory one, so I'm actually teaching from two different books, one in theory one oh, and one in theory yeah, been four. There. And teaching from a new text, it just it takes so much time because. Mm -hmm there's a certain way that you say something and then you'll say it in class and students are like, I couldn't find that definition in the book or whatever. And you're like, well, it's probably not in there. Right. So, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, there's all sorts of kind of challenges that go along with going a new direction. And I, I appreciated that um, one of the speakers and I do not remember who it was, sorry to that person who did a great job. Um, but one of them mentioned how challenging it was to create resources from scratch and how much time that took um, early on in the process mm -hmm. and that that could be a, you know, a barrier for some people adopting that resource, although now they're making all of those resources available. So it's, it sounds like it's right. gotten a lot more robust in mm -hmm. the last yeah, it does, few years. It does seem like that, but that is that that's the entry point. That's so hard is that mm -hmm. just that startup because the, mm -hmm. the theory and the theory textbooks that we're using, you know, it has all the online materials, has all mm -hmm. the things, has the scores, Same. And the worksheets and all of that. So, right. Yeah. It's, it's, and if you're overseeing adjuncts, it's helpful to be able to just hand them a complete package and say, this is mm -hmm. what we use. Here's all the materials. This is what we cover in theory one, two, three, four, RL skills, one, two, three, four, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I reviewed some of the, um, OER resources. And one of my main comments was really about making the book more anti-racist, basically. That was kind mm. of my main response to the book. There was some small things and there were some typos and things that, that I was able to catch. But like, you know, this semester for me, the Lates book, I've gotten to use less than 10% of the mm. Lates. And then I'm thinking, well, if I use less than 10%, then I'm allowed to do that <laughs> mm -hmm. through educational fair use at that point. So should I require anyone to purchase purchase that Lates book? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a conversation that I think a lot of people are having. Mm -hmm. And I, I was talking to actually John Peterson and Brian Jarvis about that as well. They were involved in the um, OMT2 book that was discussed mm -hmm. quite a mm -hmm. bit at the SMT. Fantastic project. I just told them how much I liked what they did uh, with it and, and where it's going, where it's going, yeah. um, especially with uh, offering more module-based curriculum and things mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to pick and choose certain chapters or topics or concepts that not don't necessarily follow, oh, here's theory one to four, quote unquote, you know, right, right, but instead follow that module-based curriculum that is very adaptable um, to lots mm -hmm. of different institutions. Mm -hmm. Right. But just because of just being in the textbook, you're kind of compelled. Well, well, I should probably include that in there. And well, and this I need to put this in here. Right. Is it really necessary, you know, for your students right. to have to learn this or that? Um, 
and if you're kind of have that freedom to use these modules to develop your own curriculum that works for your students that um, mm -hmm. provides the support and gets them where they need to go i think that's great yeah we the book that i'm that's new to me this semester has a whole section on counterpoint I have traditionally not done counterpoint in my theory classes, but I thought, well, it's in the book. So kind of like you said, Paul, you're like, yeah. well, it's there. So I'm <laughs> going to do it. And um, as I was hearing like Cantus firmus come out of my mouth that first day, I thought, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> like, and actually, ultimately, there were some elements of it that I really liked um, mm -hmm. how it the results of it that I really liked. But at the same time, in the moment, I thought like I there i i get a certain amount of time we get a fixed amount of time right and um is this really how i want to use it yeah with my music education and mostly music industry students mm -hmm. do i want to teach them first species counterpoint they might be producing a a, a a gregorian chant album you never know they could right? they could you're right <laughs> that's you're right. right and they might look back and be like thank god <laughs> I learned the term Cantus firmus from Dr. Weaver in 8 a.m. music theory. That's right. They're going to really know how that to mix be. that four species counterpoint. When yeah. They, uh... Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, no, I, I think that's a really big topic. And I think, and, and depending on where you're at, it's easier, you know, for, mm -hmm. in, or more difficult. I'm the only full-time theory faculty. So making a switch like that is a lot on my plate. And, yes. and just kind of to take all of that uh, under and that's it's hard it is it is i have a full-time colleague but um he is not entirely devoted to music theory he's partially music theory and partially music business and so um a lot of that falls on me as well although i'm mm -hmm. really grateful for his help and his input because he's done a lot too this semester yeah. and he's he's testing the book out as well for the first mm -hmm. time um but yeah when you're the only one or when you're overseeing other people, which Ben mm -hmm. did you too in oral yep. skills instruction, any yeah. new thing you embark on takes a lot of time and a yeah. lot of preparation. Yeah, it's a lot of rolling Probably out. Probably much more than our students ever <laughs> yeah. dream. And it's a lot of like, <laughs> oh no, you're, you get halfway in, you're like, oh, I didn't realize that was in there. And then you, it's, it's, yep. it's, you learn as you go that first year for sure. Well, we're getting, we already have, we're 45 minutes in. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, it's been so good. And we didn't even get to the pedagogy for the public session, I know. which was fantastic. I know. I, I, thought, I loved that session. Yeah, I, I did too. And thinking back on it, I was just really excited yeah. because of the openness of, of these, of, of kind of bringing, you know, music theory out into, out into the real world, out to mm -hmm. the masses. And also, I think there was a strong emphasis on a lot of the presenters on um, kind of showing that, uh, showing the professionalism and um, the profession as a theorist, like, this is mm -hmm. what we do. And we're not just going to hide behind, you know, our office doors. No, we're going to be putting it out there. Um, oh, my goodness. I had her name. I, I forgot it. She has the music theory um, staff paper um, book. And... Um, Oh, right. Her Instagram channel. Yeah. Her is, yeah. Like and so phenomenal. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I actually follow her on Instagram. Um, but I thought that was really inspiring because she's not only providing, you know, extra uh, worksheets or little examples, but also kind of showing what 
what her job is and what is it like to be, you know, a theorist and entrepreneur trying to make it, you know, in the, in this world as a musician. And yeah, I thinking, loved that too. And thinking like, that's part of what we're trying to educate students. It's not just, okay, being able to spell a G chord or to know, you know, a certain musical term, but like we're creating musicians and how are we doing that holistically, not just within our small little area. Exactly. But any, any, any closing thoughts for you guys? I mean, I, the one nice thing about was about it was not, not the one, but one of the many nice things about the conference was that it was another, a chance for us to come together and realize that we're not alone in dealing with all this craziness that, that is, uh, this fall semester that yes. we're all, we're all struggling, you know, we're all kind of coming to these problems in the best way that we can and, uh, and trying to be flexible and, and gracious as we can. So it was just nice to like, oh, you're going through that too. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The conference has always been rejuvenating for me in that way. Um, it kind of falls always right at a time in the semester where things are, you know, busy or crazy or starting to, you know, that pressure coming towards finals is right about now. Um, mm -hmm. And so I always feel that way at SMT that it, it re-energizes me. Um, and I wasn't sure if I would get that this time with the virtual experience, but I totally did. I totally mm -hmm. had that same feeling of just yeah. community and um, mm -hmm. learning a bunch and thinking a lot about what we do and how can I do it better and all of those things. So way to go SMT. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> Danny Jenkins, Brian Mosley, Patricia Hall, all the rest, whoever, all the, the yes. team that made this happen. I mean, incredible work and uh, yeah, for fantastic. Sure. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye. <laughs>